Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Peter Schlecht, CEO and founder of BrainGrade. With BrainGrade, they provide direct access to our brains and improve our cognitive abilities while helping millions of Alzheimer's patients. Hello, welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today I'm here with Peter from BrainGrade. It's going to be a pleasure to talk to you, man. We are really excited to have you here. So take us to the future. Tell us how the future will look like when you guys are widely successful. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor and pleasure to be here with you. And talking about the far future and far like in 20 years, 25 years, I expect that 85% of all people on the planet could have a smart brain. And what do I mean with a smart brain? It's some kind of invasive or non-invasive technology that supports and improves your brain. So that's what I see kind of within 20 to 25 years and what I believe could happen in the next 10 years. What we are aiming for is that we help first the people who need it the most. And these are, in this case, Alzheimer's patients and dementia patients and we take away the fear of Alzheimer's and it isn't a reason for humanity anymore why you lose a lot of healthy and happy lifespan at the end of your life. Yeah, it's such an amazing future. I want to have one. <laughs> I want to have a smart brain. Yeah, I, I, someday. <laughs> I always say it's, it's a joke uh, always when I forget something. It's like, oh, I built it for myself. But obviously <laughs> I build it for myself because yeah. I want to improve my brain. Yeah, this is like a huge, like I'm a big sci-fi fan as well. So th this is like a big promise in every book that I read. And I said, why we don't have it yet? It's 2022. I want one. Like <laughs> I grew up like seeing it and listening to it. So my first question to you would be, why you decided to get into this. I see, like I come from a technical background and I see a lot of people pretty excited about neurotech and talking about it, but not enough people actually doing it. Like why did you decide it? Like how, what's the story there? Some people would argue we already have it with our smartphones, but the access to it is pretty shitty. Yeah. So we just have to improve that. And how I came to the topic is I've been an entrepreneur before and built a company, sold it. So I have the same drive as most entrepreneurs out there to be one besides in the beginning, obviously to impress my father. <laughs> 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 this, yeah. It turned out and I saw, okay, this is, not the only thing why you should be an entrepreneur is obviously to improve the world and have a positive impact. And then you need to answer how you want to do that. So I thought, okay, for me, I wanted to have the biggest and most positive impact that is possible. And my answer that, that I found 
was, if we improve the human brain, our most important tool, then this improves the chance of a great future for all of us. It would increase kind of the chances of all the other guests on your podcast are being successful. Each of everyone being more successful in life and having a more pleasurable and great lives. It's like, how would the world look like with hundred millions of Einsteins with um, kind of instantly are capable of reading books and instantly sending information about all this, what we are going to talk about in the podcast. When was your first contact with it? Like it was like after you sold your, your previous company or you were uh, thought about it while you are in the previous company? Like when was like the first time you thought like, Hmm, I should do this. I should, this is interesting. This area of neurotechnology, it's, 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 uh, it's a thing that I would like to be more involved into. It was after my last yeah. company. And then yeah, went to a lot of conferences, had a lot of talks, but then very much realized like just being there on stage and talking about something without any real goal, it's partially satisfying. It's cool yeah. for some time. And then I was very particularly looking for these answer for myself what i want to do with the rest of my life and so when i'm sometimes dying hopefully never but um, most likely um, at a specific point when the people are putting me in grave and i listening to the speech of, of hopefully one of my kids um, and the kid she he is saying oh and he put a lot of effort in point 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 and i would say yeah that was worth it so this what I was looking for in very uh, multiple topics, and that was the one that really stuck of how to improve the human brain. And how do you start like learning about it? Like, do you have like a background in in bio or in in medicine, or like how do you start like getting into it, like the details of it, and seeing that it was possible to start a company or not? How did you start going deep? I, I have actually the best possible background for it. Economics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 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 yeah, no, that was it. Should have chosen something different. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I've, I mean, I started to, to read, read a lot. I, I mean, from articles, then talking to the people who wrote the articles, to the people who've been in the articles, and then reading about a lot, or reading a lot of papers reading a lot of literatures, speaking with the people in the literatures, speaking with patients, speaking with um, all the stake and shareholders in the whole system. And then kind of, it's a little bit like cornerstoning. Um, so you have an idea how the house should look like and what is out there. And then you're looking kind of in the corners and then talk to the people who are specific experts in the fields. And I also kind of though it's a little bit forced coincidence um if you want like that so how it does it turned out for me is that i been on a conference i think in chicago and was sitting in a corner and a guy came along had two beer we're looking around and i pretended like oh is it for me and then it turned out it has been the ceo of blackrock neurotech so i learned he is also has been chairman we talked with each other 
uh, we thought about, okay, how could such a company look like? Then I've learned that some of the founders of Neuralink, the you know, must company yeah. were leaving its company, got introduced to them. So I thought with them together, how could such a company look like or paratromics? So kind of the early winners and forefighters of the area. And then in the end, one thing came to another. Then you have an idea of how the technology looked like and you have an idea kind of what it can do. And then at one point, everything clicked together. So there has been a technology that hasn't been further developed for 20 years, deep brain stimulation, or didn't make any big leaps in the last 20 years. Then there is amazing research been done in the field of Alzheimer's and deep brain stimulation and nearly hasn't reached its full potential. And then also at the time, um, Alzheimer hit my family. So I saw that there is yeah. firsthand that there is no real good solution. And so one thing came to another. It's fourth coincidence. Connecting. Like what you guys are, are working on right now? Like it's a device that could be implanted or it's external to the brain to do the, the simulation? How it, how you guys see it now? So what we are working on is the first specialized deep brain stimulator for Alzheimer's. And how can you imagine that? It's a device that has one power stimulator sitting in the chest and then it has wires going to the head. It has kind of a connector. And then it has four probes with electrodes on the tip going into the brain. Means this, we are doing four burr holes, as they are called, yeah. so holes in the brain, in the skull, and then stick their electrodes into the depth of the human brain. So this neurostimulator, what's fully implantable, so you will not see it when it's implanted and can then record and stimulate the neurons. I can record as well. So you can stimulate deeply and record as well. Yes. It's very important kind of for the future of the field because how it's been done is that you've been always only stimulating. But what you want to do is kind of when you want to enhance waves is you should know kind of where a wave is on the top and where it's on the bottom of a wave. So because if you're doing it in the wrong timing, it can be harmful even so that you can, as a called closed loop yeah. um, capabilities and their stimulate. Yeah, you, you can modulate them like because if you have like an input and an output, you can modulate it and it would be better for each patient as well because you could learn from each patient like their own like special modalities with the input because there's no solution that would be a one size fits all for just stimulating blindly. But having like an input output things, it's really interesting. Yeah. Makes it really more like sophisticated and you can be really more precise with it, which means that you have a, a big range of motion that you can be doing with it. It's, yeah. Yeah. It makes, makes sense. But make it harder as well. Right. Because you need to have like, like it's the same electrodes that are doing the reading in the stimulations at the same time, or there are different wires yeah. doing different things. No, these are um, the same um, electrodes, and this is kind of what it described as multiple levels. 
kind of in its complexity and how successful you can help and stimulate um, kind of the human brain. And what we are actually doing are two things. So on the one side, we are improving the biomarkers in the human brain, especially for Alzheimer patients. I'm talking about, about more about that. And the second thing is kind of really then the improvement of memory. And you can improve memory also with just stimulating. And yeah, it's true that the brain waves of each human is different. So there is not the one brain wave kind of like theta frequency that is particular similar. So that one theta frequency from patient A to patient B to patient C is different. So if you do as it called some theta burst stimulation, you still can improve the memory capabilities of the patient. But if you do it in a closed loop fashion, then you obviously can improve it way further and way better. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And in order to implant it, like how it is, or it will be like a surgery to put the, how it, how it would work. Like what type of recovery time are you looking into here like what type of like it's a major surgery it's like a small one how how it would be as i'm not from the field for me it was always a very major surgery so <laughs> yeah. i i thought i mean i, I want to do like a non-invasive company because i mean yeah. you don't want to have the surgery um, yeah it's even now it feels for me very common to stick things into brains that change. <laughs> <laughs> um, i i still know the feeling that it's not normal <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a big misconception about yeah. the field because I mean, for me, it was like a super invasive thing. But yeah. when we talked with our neurosurgeons and when you see the field, it's a common procedure. Yeah. And it, because I mean, you throw a hole, you stick in the thing. Yeah. And end of the story. And yeah. it's also a misconception about the brain itself. I mean, the brain is itself is very jelly. Jelly. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. very much forgiving um, yeah. for it. And sure, there's a lot of things that come um, along with it, but we should never forget this deep brain stimulation has already been used for over 300,000 patients um, with Parkinson's disease. So surgeons are used to this operation. This is not something very special. Yeah, yeah. And like for reading the data, like can you read it from, from the device? externally or the closed loop it's inside the device to simulation so there's like an outport it's like how does like one can like read back the data yeah th this is also again our multiple levels and steps kind of in the development yeah it's, it's like in the perfect world you can read write full control all the time um, at any point with the device um, as you hope for but big limiting factor is actually with the devices in the moment the battery and their capacity and it is so that there are actually two loops that you're closing so the first loop to close is the one with the electrophysiology so you're measuring what's happening in the brain and then depending on that you're stimulating the second loop what you want to close is the one with the behavior of the patient because what is the challenge and what you should achieve is that 
the patient is feeling better. So, yeah, for example, yeah. in memory, they um, have better rates in remembering things and recalling things that they wanted to remember. So you should know that and kind of this information, in example, when they do then some memory tests and cognition tests should flow back into the device. So this would be then another step and kind of in improving the model, what you're using kind of for stimulating the brain um, itself. But yes. the status today for deep brain stimulation is there's actually a person sitting or you're going to the doctor, you normally have two probes in the brain for Parkinson. And then a person has, because now it's modern, they have a slider on an iPad. Oh. <laughs> well, like an opener, yeah. they're looking at you, look like you're walking and then they're sliding it and putting kind of the um, stimulation up or down. Oh, really? Yeah, that's yeah. that's the state. I mean, currently these devices have like four to eight electrodes. Yeah, because, Jesus, like, so they, they would like slide it, like, kind of, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of improvement to be done there. If yeah, there's, like, uh, this is, I mean, these devices are still made by hand. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, still, it's made by hand. still yeah, like, we uh, like fabricating them with wafers. Yeah. Um, kind of the electrodes now. So electrodes, the probes with the electrodes on the tip. But today it's, I mean, they're yeah. made by hand. Because there's, there's a lot of dimensions that you can improve though, then not only the, by the reading of the signals, you'll be improving it with the closed loop, but you'll be adding probably a new dimension to that, which is time. Because like when the guy's using the iPad to do that, the velocity that he can see things and actually tune things it's completely different than the actual velocity that you can actually read things and input as well. So probably we have like another level of quality there. It's like the difference in time is so big that would be probably a qualitative difference between what you can do and what a person can do just by sliding things on an iPad. I think probably gonna we're gonna we will see. I hope to that we're gonna see like a qualitative difference, not only a quantitative difference because of that because it's so different in time. There are the two things kind of to imagine. And the first thing is 95% of the patients are going to the hospital to getting their device adapted or adapted. So there are two every, maybe after two months and then again after two months, they're in the hospital to adapt the device. Now, there are a few special cases. Um, I'm, it's a guess. No. I have written that the numbers, but probably three, two, four, five percent um, have a device where they can connect with a doctor uh, via a Zoom call and then kind of they can from their place kind of then adapt uh, the capabilities um, of the device. So it's coming, but it's coming very, very slowly. And I often compare it to kind of the car industry. So they have been very good in building cars and welding the steel. But over the last 10 years, they experienced that it's very much about the software and what you do with the devices and how you interact with the person then who's sitting in your car. And it's not just about kind of being good in welding steel. And today's um, med device companies are very, very, very good in mel, um, kind of 
putting the steel together, but yeah. um, they have a lot, a big lag in kind of the software component in it. Yeah. And then yeah. there's a second time component because um, what is the second time component in Alzheimer patients and dementia patients? What do you see on the one side, see kind of these loss of oscillation of gamma and theta waves. But what you also see is that they are losing synchrony and you need some synchrony of these. The one is a long wave and the other one is a very short wave. So they are synchronizing. And through this synchronization, you successfully can build memories. And this synchronization is getting lost. It's a little bit like your clock is getting lost in your brain kind of for you're not finding these memories again. And it's not kind of this whole information is not traveling kind of to the memory circuit anymore, um, incomplete. And so things are getting lost and people are getting disoriented um, in space and in time and um, with their memories. Yeah. How much a device like that, the current ones people are using costs right now? Currently, the average reimbursement rate is 26,000 something for such a deep brain stimulator in the US. And there are other devices who are similar and kind of capabilities like for um, epilepsy. I don't say no which device it is, but it's around 45,000 in average. And how long does one of those like stay active? Like how long? There is no reason kind of to pull it out. If yeah. you want like that. You, so, you can. Yeah. Um, you have rechargeable ones. Interestingly, people prefer non-rechargeable ones because like rechargeable ones, our case like this would run, depends on the setup, yeah, five, seven days. But then you have to recharge all the time and you always get remembered that you're ill. And yeah. if you ask kind of then the patients, normally you have to exchange the battery after four or five years, some of them. Yeah. Often yeah. it's then two to three years, but um, at least the current device. There are some that are not rechargeable though? Like how would be yeah, possible? Exactly. They're not rechargeable. It's just you then cut it open, pull them out, put a new battery and or a new stimulator. Ah, you just use the new battery for once it's, once it's go off, you put another one there and it just... Yeah, exactly. Just for a while. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And as a deep tech founder, like looking at this, like a hard product, like, like this, that you, you guys have built, like, how do you demonstrate traction to investors and how, how guys think about like raising money? Did you raise around or, or not yet? So uh, we raised around. I also um, put a lot of my own money in the company. So we are currently raising another round. Everyone who is interested, yeah. welcome. <laughs> PS at braingrade.io. <laughs> you, you guys are raising it around when? Now? Right now? You are yeah, right yeah. in the moment. So, the moment. raising it around. Oh, so, yeah, you know, kind of the upcoming months, we are raising a new round. And traction is data, I would say. So, I'm always very impressed and I'm still this from. Vanessa Tulosa, who said to me, I'm always very impressed when I see data. <laughs> and what this means is for us, so we've tested the concept in human and could have shown 
the improvement in memory and through that we could show traction. So we are allowed to do it. So, and traction on the other side is kind of for sure in building the device itself and showing parts of the device and showing data about the device, about our core innovations we have with it. So in our case, specifically the electrodes and we are yeah. using and they're showing the data that they are superior. You're thinking about testing it in, in Germany or the United States? Do you, do you, where do you think about testing it? Um, both. Both. The regulations are different from Germany to the United States, like the German FDA equivalent, how it's, how it works there. Like it's like, it's harder, it's easier, it's the same trouble. FDA is pretty hard to get things approved there. So how you guys look at it? So same, same, but different. But that what I'm hearing from my befriended deep tech, med tech uh, founders who have gone through the whole process is that the FDA is way more capable in the moment as the kind of MDR regulations. Um, so the regulatory in the EU. So it's preferred to do the regulatory process in the EU. But then on the other hand, like we are now doing our next study in the European Union because we have there a good trial center and we are close to that. Um, it's one of the most recognized stereotactic centers, um, I think, even in the world. They have great recruiting rates um, and we have a chance to get even parts um, of the study reimbursed kind of through the German health tech systems. So we try to get the best out of both worlds. Both worlds. Yeah, I have seen a lot of activity from like deep tech startups in Europe, particularly. Like it seems to be something about Europe. There's a lot of deep tech companies being started and or being like growing in, in Europe. Do you have an, any, any theory or any idea about that? Like why Europe seems to have this like vocation for deep tech? I would say not Germany. Yeah, because uh -huh. I mean, there I'm more knowledgeable about it's, I mean, we are proud to be engineers and we have very good education and we have good resources and research centers here. So in example, one of my co-founders, Christian had been um, head of neurotechnology for the largest research center in Germany, in Jülich and There has been some patents available and he wanted to um, do something else and do something more closer to patients and bring all the technology he developed over the years kind of into patients. And so this is, I think, the one reason why we have good starts for deep tech companies. And now yeah. it's coming there. But the money for deep tech so far, the big money is still coming from the U.S., And especially when you want to build it up as a company um, and also kind of from the grant structures, um, there is way more money um, in the U.S. And then I think a lot of deep tech companies then kind of while they had laid the bases here in Europe, they're going over to the U.S. And the U.S. is, I mean, doing this pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But the, the, do you think that there is like a, a world where like you, we will see like deep tech startups operating, let's say from Germany or from France for like the talent pool and then just like 
raising into the US and then have like an operation in, in Europe? Or do you think that people would mi migrate to the United States as well, like to operate there with the... I mean, I can only talk about us um, yeah. in this case. So probably it's a trend. And I mean, it's a trend that came with COVID that this typical structure of everyone sitting in one room isn't there anymore. And I mean, we are recruiting worldwide and it has the beauty that a lot of people can join the company and work with us. And these are the world best people because I mean, they don't have the pain of moving their family um, over a continent yeah. to make the decision um, to work with us. And before we then have some clusters, because I mean, when you want to build an electrode, you need a clean room. And the engineers need to be there um, to build the electrode and to test the electrode and to test the electronics. But besides that, um, we don't care where the people are sitting first and foremost. Yeah, make, makes sense. I think, and for a hard problem like what you guys are tackling, like you need like the best of the best people that you can find. Like you need to have like, and then this we it would be hard to have them all clustered in like a single place or a single city it's it's, it's be really difficult to it, it can come over time so when we go yeah. further that um i think i still see that we will have some clusters um, and yeah. but besides that i mean i don't care where the people sit i think it's a misunderstanding of the entrepreneurs when they just think okay because the people are with me in a room and i have control about do they work or don't they work and then you have to ask yourself If you really have to control the person, if they do a work, then first, um, how well are you managing? Yeah. Because obviously you are not giving some goals that need are realistically to be achieved. And second, um, what kind of person have you hired that needs to be controlled and don't have this inner drive of kind of changing the world? And yeah. um, you more like have to stop the person to really do now some holidays because it would harm himself and the company um, if he would. Yeah, either you don't trust them. And if you don't trust them, you need to ask yourself, why don't you trust them? Because you should be trusting them. If you don't trust them, it's a problem in itself. Like not trusting them because you either you hired people that should not be there in the first place. So you hired the wrong team you don't have the right people so you need to change the team or you are the problem for some reason in your own head so <laughs> this is the two things that could be the problem <laughs> i i mean it's also normal i think for every person to have some form of trust issues kind yeah. of towards another person and yeah that's normal you just have to recognize it it's also even like when you trust other persons then being good in showing that and making them feel trusted um, is, is again, another level, what you need to achieve. And I think it's also something you always have to work on as a CEO, especially and as a founder, that your team feel trusted. Yeah. And tell us a little bit, like, what people get wrong about what you guys are doing. What's the most common, like, misconception or thing that people get wrong most frequently when you explain what you guys do? I mean, one is one with the implantation. Yeah, which is like the yeah, it's the fear it's of it being more invasive than it really is, or being more of a big deal than it really is. Yeah, exactly. So that's right. number one. 
Number two is we don't know enough about Alzheimer's. Um, so we cannot do anything about it. It's um, our lead scientist, uh, Rob Hampson, Professor Hampson from Wake Forest. Um, he often compares it like when you break your leg, you don't know kind of on the mo molecule level exactly what's happening there, but you know how to fix it and how yeah. to do something good so that your, that your leg is doing better. And we are in the same stage with Alzheimer's. So we are not the company to cure Alzheimer's or to tell you why it arises from some people and why it not arise from other people. But we know we can do something kind of to really slow it significantly down and improve the life quality of each and every single one of the patients. Each and oh, every single this one. Is, this is interesting. It's really interesting. And by the way, remarks, it will not be each and every single one. Even without the, the molecular part, you can still do... Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If you can have like an intervention on it and just help it and make it better for the people. You don't yeah, need to you don't need to to exactly know from the ultimate molecular details how things are happening if you can help it on the terms of the patient in the end it's what people want right what you want is to it's, it's to make it 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 like the symptoms and all the trouble of memory and all the pain that it causes people like people not recognizing their own sons and daughters and things like that. Like if you can do something about it, it's already. And we can, this yeah. is something what's, what's kind of also maybe a misconception. It's here. We can yeah. do it. We can do it. We just have to do it. It's everything's here. We just have to do it. Another thing it's like, um, what a lot of people are getting wrong is there's, do you have Alzheimer's? It's a tricky question. It's a very tricky question, especially yeah, to answer without cutting your brain open. But this is a super theoretical question because when you talk to patients, there are the patients who say, I need it now. And I don't yeah. need it tomorrow. I need it now. I need it today. Yeah. And I'm ready for it because I know my trajectory of my disease. I've now recognized it over the last one and a half years, two years how my life is getting worse, how I continue forgetting, how I cannot follow at work, how I cannot play PlayStation anymore, how I'm I'm really losing my whole life and I need it now. So that's really something. And what, what you say is exactly correct. I mean, when we see now what happened with Adokano now, it's, I mean, they successfully increased one of the, um, now like, how would say biggest is not, a, but one of the biomarkers yeah. of Alzheimer's. I'm a lot better successfully, but the people weren't doing better. Yeah. And so, and, and, and this is like, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's reevaluate that because it, the end of goal is to actually make people be better. Right. So this is exactly like us, but that's what, what, what we want we to do. To. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, for example. It's just interesting. It's an interesting point of view. Going from the other side instead of the molecular ones, you're going to go a little bit like from the other side to, to, so yeah. to actually intervene directly on the, on, the, on the problem and maybe fix it. And what do you guys think about the timeline to doing like clinical trials and things like that? Like what, 
What's your? We are going to do our next clinical trial as soon as we have closed our um, next financing round. So like in a month, two months, three months, um, yeah. something like that. So, and this is why I said it's not something from the future. It's here. We can help. Yeah. So next we are going with 12 patients with our amazing, hopefully our amazing clinical partner university. I don't say which university has to still have a contract. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, maybe I have said it already in the podcast. I'm not sure. I often say it because I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm very much looking forward um, to that. So closing yeah. the round, um, putting devices in humans and helping them. That's yeah. have have you tested it in in, in animals? Yeah, there have been like some tests. Yeah. Um, that, but there will be way more also tests in animals. What type of animals do you guys use as a model for things like that? It's critical thing <laughs> to talk about. But I can tell about um, common things is that you're doing kind of especially the electro testing with rodents. And in the future, we would also uh, work with non human primates. Most oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, we have this big advantage that we can already work with um, humans. And I mean, this is obviously the best. What can happen to us? Because humans are particularly better in giving feedback and expressing themselves <laughs> than mammals <Perhaps>. or <laughs> rodents or yeah. Yeah, non human primates in, and in this case. To use a model, you need to cause Alzheimer and the animal as well, right? On the model, yeah. To make it. It's, it's very. It's, it's hard. There are yes. And there are only very rare non-human primates who are pretty old and have some form of dementia, but there is not this one real model. And this is the big end. What we've seen a lot, I think it wouldn't be particularly the same with bioelectronics. But especially what we've seen a lot um, for drugs is that we had great results in animals, but what hasn't worked is the transition from animals into humans. Oh, this is the step where most of the time kind of the treatments failed. Yeah, I see. On the hardware side, like in like supply chain, how much do you guys do in-house and how much can you guys like outsource like how is the supply chain around neurotech right now like there's like suppliers like we would expect in other like hardware where you can like have like mm -hmm. suppliers that can build things for you or not you need to do by hand or you have internalized everything like how this work right now how what's the the state of this i'm i'm giving a general answer to that <laughs> We are very proud that we are developing our world-leading electrodes in-house. Oh, you are doing it in-house. Yeah. So that and, um, but there are a lot of things what you can outsource. And I don't say we outsource everything, but um, yeah. there, um, and this is also something about building deep tech startups. Um, it's amazing um, kind of how much you can use the help of others and people who've been there, who've done that. And it also makes a lot of sense because you only want to innovate at the things that really make a change for the patient and kind of for your treatment and not reinventing everything. 
Yeah, sure. You have a lot of moving parts on that. So you need to focus on what you can add the most value in that particular supply chain where you can like really, really... I mean, it's all about managing complexity. It's, I mean, if you have like you formerly a SaaS company or if it's um, a deep tech company, it's, I think every company, especially when it's growing, it's about how you manage complexity and how good you are as a founder in doing that. Yeah, yeah, true. And what did surprise you the most after you started this company? Like what you were not expecting or that surprised you after you started this journey with the with this company? What surprised me? Um, I think two things surprised me. Um, one thing is when you're doing deep tech startups and you have a good cause, how open the community is in neuroscience. I mean, I still know the field from SaaS. It's like, it's not not as open. Yeah, um, or competitive. Software. Yeah, more competitive, way more competitive. Yeah. And super open, super welcoming. And that's your, f- like, yeah. I mean, everyone is following more or less same target to doing something good for humans and you're willing to help each other. And a second thing yeah. is maybe the, you find people like more like mission driven, maybe when you yeah. go talk to them. Yeah. But it, especially for us, it was pretty easy to really get the top of the tops of the field kind of on board. Don't know why. Um, but, and I don't know if it's like for everyone because I mean, I cannot compare, but for us, it was like, I mean, when you have the right drive and it's the right research. And the people see, oh, they can do something helpful there for patients and for people. And putting this into a product, they are more than happy kind of to work together with. That's, yeah, um, yeah that was really a surprise. Yeah, I'll be surprised by that as well. This was a thing that I was not expecting to, to hear as well. Yeah, yeah, which is good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. <laughs> to see that, like, yeah. there's so many other problems besides that, like if you can have like the, I think there's a thing that, that I think it was Sam, Sam Altman from Y Combinator. I think now he's like open AI, but I think that he says this phrase that I, I have seen him say that in some aspects, doing a hard startup is easier than doing an easy startup. And the only aspect when it happens that, it's easier to get good people involved on it because good people would be like energized by the challenge and by the the mission and, and, and that ex- in that aspect the hard startup is easier than the easy one on the aspect of getting great people it's the the only one where you get a little bit because people great people would be like excited about doing something important or some solving a real problem for real people i think this is this is kind of i think this is generalized across the board i think for hard problems i think it's 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 like smart people tend to like that to like uh contributing to to hard things and hard problems i definitely agree with that to get into the to different last questions so do you have any advice for someone starting a deep tech company and so first of all, I always say, start with the, the why, why you're doing it, and then just start. This is, I think, the most important thing. Another founder told also me, 
it's like as long you're doing something and you're doing it for a good cause and doing something good, everything is also good. Yeah? So yeah. there's not be go too much wrong. I mean, the status quo is zero. So yeah. you're changing the status quo and that's um, pretty good. Just yeah, besides good. that, I mean, if you have another two hours, I'm more than happy to share with what I've learned. Um, <laughs> Do you have any book recommendations for us? I'm seeing some books on the, on the back there. I have good recommendations. I can, I have right now on my desk, this Weisman multipliers. Multipliers. Okay. Multipliers. Very good book. I have also, um, in my bag, I have a book. It depends. It's not so much for deep tech, but it would be very good for, um, SaaS companies. I have like the high growth handbook from. Oh, it's. I'll add you. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. I have read that one. It's good. Yeah. And I have one um, on my desk. I just don't see it. But this is also a good one. This is a real surprise. The CEO test. CEO test? The CEO test. Oh, this one I haven't heard about it yet. The CEO test. Let me take a look at it. Take yeah, that um, was a real surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard about it. I'm big on books as well. I like at least having some reading done. It helps. If it helps you want, you lot. can choose a blog, and I tell you which one I would recommend from. <laughs> There's anyone about specific neurotech that you you found it good? Um, yes, um, and there is the one. What I very much, I mean, it's I think it's standard. It's from one of our advisors, Claude more Brain Computer Interface Technologies. This is, I think, definitely a must-read in the field, yes. And to get it to my last question, if you are able to send one message to everybody on Earth, what would it be? Other people are thinking. Other people are thinking. What do you mean by that? It has many different levels. That's what I like. Yeah, there's so many levels. <laughs> I'll be thinking about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes, I'll be thinking about that. Yeah, this is good. This is a good one. It's a good Thank one. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for this talk. It was like an amazing conversation. I hope you guys do great. I hope that someday I will implant advice from you guys and you'll have like a smart brain in a couple of decades yeah, or I so. Hope so <laughs> I hope we, we will want to make this yeah. possible and available to everyone. Yeah. I think it would be an awesome future. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.